Chapter Twenty Nine of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Twenty Nine. The next morning. Arthur did not pass a sleepless night. He slept long and well. For sleep comes to the perplexed. If the perplexed are only weary enough, but at seven he rang his bell and astonished Pym by declaring he was going to get up and must have breakfast brought to him at eight. And see that my mare is saddled at half past eight, and tell my grandfather when he's down that I'm better this morning and am gone for a ride. He had been awake an hour and could rest in bed no longer. In bed our yesterdays are too oppressive. If a man can only get up. Though it be but to whistle or to smoke, he has a present which offers some resistance to the past, sensations which assert themselves against tyrannous memories, and if there were such a thing as taking averages of feeling, it would certainly be found that in the hunting and shooting seasons, regret, self-reproach, and mortified pride weigh lighter on country gentlemen than in late spring and summer. Arthur felt he should be more of a man on horseback. Even the presence of Pym, waiting on him with the usual deference, was a reassurance to him after the scenes of yesterday. For with Arthur's sensitiveness to opinion, the loss of Adam's respect was a shock to his self-contentment, which suffused his imagination with the sense he had sunk in all eyes, as a sudden shock of fear from some real peril makes a nervous woman afraid even to step. Because all her perceptions are suffused with a sense of danger. Arthur's, as you know, was a loving nature. Deeds of kindness were as easy to him as a bad habit. They were the common issue of his weakness and good qualities, of his egoism and his sympathy. He didn't like to witness pain, and he liked to have grateful eyes beaming on him as the giver of pleasure. When he was a lad of seven. He one day kicked down an old gardener's pitch of broth from no motive but a kicking impulse, not reflecting that it was the old man's dinner. But on learning that sad fact, he took his favourite pencil case and a silver-hafted knife out of his pocket and offered them as compensation. He had been the same Arthur ever since, trying to make all offences forgotten in benefits. If there were any bitterness in his nature. It could only show itself against the man who refused to be conciliated by him, and perhaps the time was come for some of that bitterness to rise. At the first moment, Arthur had felt pure distress and self-reproach at discovering that Adam's happiness was involved in his relation to Hetty. If there had been a possibility of making Adam tenfold amends, if deeds of gift or other deeds could have restored Adam's contentment and regard for him as a benefactor. Arthur would not only have executed them without hesitation, but would have felt bound all the more closely to Adam, and would never have been weary of making retribution. But Adam could receive no amends; his suffering could not be cancelled; his respect and affection could not be recovered by any prompt deeds of atonement. He stood like an immovable obstacle against which no pressure could avail, an embodiment of what Arthur most shrank from believing in. The irrevocableness of his own wrongdoing. 
The words of scorn, the refusal to shake hands, the mastery asserted over him in their last conversation in the hermitage, above all the sense of having been knocked down, to which a man does not very well reconcile himself, even under the most heroic circumstances, pressed on him with a galling pain which was stronger than compunction. Arthur would so gladly have persuaded himself that he had done no harm, and if no one had told him to the contrary, he could have persuaded himself so much better. Nemesis can seldom forge a sword for herself out of our consciences, out of the suffering we feel in the suffering we may have caused. There is rarely metal enough there to make an effective weapon. Our moral sense learns the manners of good society, and smiles when others smile. But when some rude person gives rough names to our actions, she is apt to take part against us. And so it was with Arthur. Adam's judgment of him, Adam's grating words, disturbed his self-soothing arguments. Not that Arthur had been at ease before Adam's discovery. Struggles and resolves had transformed themselves into compunction and anxiety. He was distressed for Hetty's sake, and distressed for his own, that he must leave her behind. He had always, both in making and breaking resolutions, looked beyond his passion, and seen that it must speedily end in separation. But his nature was too ardent and tender for him not to suffer at this parting. And on Hetty's account he was filled with uneasiness. He had found out the dream in which she was living, that she was to be a lady in silks and satins, and when he had first talked to her about his going away, she had asked him tremblingly to let her go with him and be married. It was his painful knowledge of this which had given the most exasperating sting to Adam's reproaches. He had said no word with the purpose of deceiving her. Her vision was all spun by her own childish fancy. But he was obliged to confess to himself that it was spun half out of his own actions. And to increase the mischief, on this last evening he had not dared to hint the truth to Hetty. He had been obliged to soothe her with tender, hopeful words lest he should throw her into violent distress. He felt the situation acutely, felt the sorrow of the dear thing in the present, and thought with a darker anxiety of the tenacity which her feelings might have in the future. There was one sharp point which pressed against him, every other he could evade by hopeful self-persuasion. The whole thing had been secret. The poisons had not the shadow of a suspicion. No one, except Adam, knew anything of what had passed. No one else was likely to know. For Adam had impressed on Hetty that it would be fatal to betray, by word or look, that there had been the least intimacy between them. And Adam, who knew half their secret, would rather help them keep it than betray it. It was an unfortunate business altogether, but there was no use in making it worse than it was by imaginary exaggerations and forebodings of evil that might never come. The temporary sadness for Hetty was the worst consequence. He resolutely turned away his eyes from any bad consequence that was not demonstratively inevitable. But, but Hetty might have had the trouble in some other way, if not in this. And perhaps hereafter he might be able to do a great deal for her, and make up for all the tears she would shed about him. She would owe the advantage of his care for her in future years to the sorrow she had incurred now. So good comes out of evil, such is the beautiful arrangement of things. Are you inclined to ask whether this can be the same Arthur, who, two months ago, had that freshness of feeling, 
that delicate honour which shrinks from wounding even a sentiment, and does not contemplate any more positive offences as possible for it, who thought his own self-respect was a higher tribunal than any external opinion? The same, I assure you, only under different conditions. Our deeds determine us as much as we determine our deeds, and until we know what has been or will be the peculiar combination of outward with inward facts which constitutes a man's critical actions, it will be better not to think ourselves wise about his character. There is a terrible coercion in our deeds, which may first turn the honest man into a deceiver, and then reconcile him to the change, for this reason, that the second wrong presents itself to him in the guise of the only practicable right. The action which before commission had been seen with that blended common sense and fresh untarnished feeling which is the healthy eye of the soul, is looked at afterwards with the lens of apologetic ingenuity, through which all things that men call beautiful and ugly are seen to be made up of textures very much alike. Europe adjusts itself to the fait accompli, and so does an individual character, till the placid adjustment is disturbed by a convulsive retribution. No man can escape this vitiating effect of an offence against his own sentiment of right, and the effect was the stronger in Arthur because of that very need of self-respect, which, while his conscience was still at ease, was one of his best safeguards. Self-accusation was too painful to him. He could not face it. He must persuade himself that he had not been very much to blame. He began even to pity himself for the necessity he was under of deceiving Adam. It was a course so opposed to the honesty of his own nature. But then it was the only right thing to do. Well, whatever had been amiss in him, he was miserable enough in consequence. Miserable about Hetty, miserable about this letter he had promised to write, and it seemed at one moment to be a gross barbarity, at the other perhaps the greatest kindness he could do to her. And across all this reflection would dart every now and then a sudden impulse of passionate defiance towards all consequences. He would carry Hetty away, and all other considerations might go to... In this state of mind the four walls of his room made an intolerable prison to him. They seemed to hem in and press down upon him all the crowd of contradictory thoughts and conflicting feelings, some of which would fly away in the open air. He had only an hour or two to make up his mind in, and he must get clear and calm. Once on Meg's back, in the fresh air of that fine morning, he would be more master of the situation. The pretty creature arched her bay neck in the sunshine, and poured the gravel, and trembled with pleasure when her master stroked her nose, and patted her, and talked to her even in a more caressing tone than usual. He loved her the better, because she knew nothing of his secrets. But Meg was quite as well acquainted with her master's mental state as many others of her sex with mental condition of that nice young gentleman towards whom their hearts are in a state of fluttering expectation. Arthur cantered for five miles beyond the chase, till he was at the foot of a hill where there were no hedges or trees to hem in the road. Then he threw the bridle on Meg's neck and prepared to make up his mind. Hetty knew that their meeting yesterday must be the last before Arthur went away. There was no possibility of their contriving another without exciting suspicion, and she was like a frightened child, unable to think of anything, 
only able to cry at the mention of parting, and then put her face up to have the tears kissed away. He could do nothing but comfort her, and lull her into dreaming on. A letter would be a dreadfully abrupt way of awakening her. Yet there was truth in what Adam said, that would save her from a lengthened delusion which might be worse than a sharp immediate pain. And it was the only way of satisfying Adam, who must be satisfied, for more reasons than one. If he could have seen her again, but that was impossible. There was such a thorny hedge of hindrances between them, and the imprudence would be fatal. And yet, if he could see her again, what good would it do? Only cause him to suffer more from the sight of her distress and the remembrance of it. Away from him she was surrounded by all the motives to self-control. A sudden dread here fell like a shadow across his imagination, the dread lest she should do something violent in her grief, and close upon that dread came another, which deepened the shadow. But he shook them off with the force of youth and hope. What was the ground for painting the future in that dark way? It was just as likely to be reverse. Arthur told himself he did not deserve that things should turn out badly. He had never meant beforehand to do anything his conscience disapproved. He had been led on by circumstances. There was a sort of implicit confidence in him that he was really such a good fellow at bottom, Providence would not treat him harshly. At all events, he couldn't help what would come now. All he could do was to take what seemed the best course at the present moment. And he persuaded himself that that course was to make the way open between Adam and Hetty. Her heart might really turn to Adam, as he said, after a while, and in that case there would have been no great harm done, since it was still Adam's ardent wish to make her his wife. To be sure, Adam was deceived, deceived in a way that Arthur would have resented as a deep wrong if it had been practised on himself. That was a reflection that marred the consoling prospect. Arthur's cheeks even burned in mingled shame and irritation at the thought. But what could a man do in such dilemma? He was bound in honour to say no word that could injure Hetty. His first duty was to guard her. He would never have told or acted a lie on his own account. Good God! What a miserable fool he was to have brought himself into such a dilemma! And yet, if ever man had excuses, he had. Pity that consequences are determined not by excuses, but by actions. Well, the letter must be written. It was the only means that promised the solution of the difficulty. The tears came into Arthur's eyes as he thought of Hetty reading it, but it would be almost as hard for him to write it. He was not doing anything easy to himself, and this last thought helped him to arrive at a conclusion. He could never deliberately have taken a step which inflicted pain on another and left himself at ease. Even a moment of jealousy at the thought of giving up Hetty to Adam went to convince him that he was making a sacrifice. When once he had come to this conclusion, he turned Meg round and set off home in a canter. The letter should be written the first thing, and the rest of the day would be filled with other business. He should have no time to look behind him. Happily, Irwine and Gawain were coming to dinner, and by twelve o'clock the next day he should have left the chase miles behind him. There was some security in this constant occupation against an uncontrollable impulse seizing on him to rush to Hetty and thrust into her hand some mad proposition that would undo everything. Faster and faster went the sensitive Meg, at every slight sign from her rider, till the canter had passed into a swift gallop. 
"'I thought they said the master was took ill last night,' said sour old John, the groom, at dinner-time in the servants' hall. "'He's been riding fit to split the mare in two this forenoon.' "'That's happened one of the symptoms, John,' said the facetious coachman. "'Then I wish he would let blood foot, that's all,' said John grimly. Adam had been early at the chase to know how Arthur was, and had been relieved from all anxiety about the effects of his blow by learning that he was gone out for a ride. At five o'clock he was punctually there again, and sent up word of his arrival. In a few minutes Pym came down with a letter in his hand and gave it to Adam, saying that the captain was too busy to see him, and had written everything he had to say. The letter was directed to Adam but he went out of doors again before opening it. It contained a sealed enclosure directed to Hetty. On the inside of the cover Adam read, In the enclosed letter I have written everything you wish. I leave it to you to decide whether you will be doing best to deliver it to Hetty or to return it to me. Ask yourself once more whether you are not taking a measure which may pain her more than mere silence. There is no need for us seeing each other again now. We shall meet with better feelings some months hence. A.D. Perhaps he's no right not to see me, thought Adam. It's no use meeting to say more hard words, and it's no use meeting to shake hands and say we're friends again. We're not friends, and it's better not to pretend it. I know forgiveness is a man's duty, but to my thinking that can only mean as you're given up all thoughts of taking revenge. It can never mean as though you're to have your old feelings back again. For that's not possible. He's not the same man to me, and I can't feel the same toward him. God help me, I don't know whether I feel the same towards anybody. I seem as if I'd been measuring my work from a false line, and got it all to measure over again. But the question about delivering the letter to Hetty soon absorbed Adam's thoughts. Arthur had procured some relief to himself by throwing the decision on Adam with a warning, and Adam, who was not given to hesitation, hesitated here. He determined to feel his way, to ascertain as well as he could what was Hetty's state of mind before he decided on delivering the letter. End of chapter 29